0: When I think of legacy, I think of my grandmother, <clears throat> Grandma Schmidt. She, uh, she used to tell us as kids uh, that she came over on the boat, which we had no idea what that meant. Later I found out she came over as an immigrant with her parents from Germany. And uh, she just, I have all these great memories of her. She would make all these great German dishes that we'd eat for dessert. Uh, she would sing all these German Christmas carols to us. I remember this one time, she, we were sitting around the, the table, and we were just laughing, and we were saying, "We were showing our muscle," and we said, "Grandma, show us your muscle." And uh, she held up her arm, and it had this little little muscle, and then she let go, and all of a sudden it started swinging, and she just laughed so hard. We were all just laughing. She could laugh at herself and with us as well, and just just a great presence. I remember after my grandfather died that uh, she married another man, and uh, together he was a pastor and together they served at their local church uh, in Bandon, Oregon, uh, this little Baptist church um, right on the 101. And it was even uh, up to her last days, she died of cancer right before her 90th birthday. And up into that point, she was playing the piano every week at her church. She was uh, leading Bible studies and she read her Bible every day. I remember after she passed, my uncle was um, overseeing all her assets in her estate and he sent this note, It meant the world to me. Um, This is what it said. I've now disposed of all my property to my family. There's one thing more I wish I could give, and that is the Christian religion. She had this deep faith, and we knew that she lived it out. And then she says this. If they had that, and I had not given them one penny, they would be rich. And if they had not that, and I had given them the whole world, they would be poor. And I've saved that note because it's such a great legacy, a great reminder for me of somebody who could finish strong and follow Jesus faithfully. And for that, I'm so grateful. Yeah.
1: Oh, so good. Hi, you guys. It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. And I'm part of the team here at Westgate, and uh, happy Mother's Day again to all of you, and uh, so glad you're here, everybody in the theater and watching online as well. Um, uh, I first heard Mark share that story about his grandma Schmidt uh, weeks ago, and the first time I heard it, and every time I've heard it since, uh, in person and on that video, I've had the same reaction that most of you have right now, which is like you're trying to cover your tears, right? And... um, I love the question Mark asks at the very begin or the statement he makes at the very beginning of the video. When I think of legacy, I think of my grandmother. You know, um, Grandma Schmidt, who is with the Lord looking down on this Mother's Day, I do wonder if there's just this big, bright, beaming smile across her face that says, oh, that's it. Like, that's, that was all of life it forces us to ask ourselves the question. And I have found myself asking myself this question quite a bit in recent weeks. Will someone say that about me? Or will someone say that about me in a way that isn't so positive? When, long after I'm gone, long after I've gone to be with Jesus, will someone, subsequent generations, will someone say with a glowing smile and gratitude, Will they say, when I think of legacy, I think of Jay? Will they say that about you? And the reason this question is important is because most of the time, if we're honest, we live life failing to ask the question. But also, deep down inside, as we look back on our histories, we know something in us longs to answer the question. In other words, we want to leave a legacy, but we don't live every day like we do. Um, If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've been journeying through this series called The Wise Life, Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets, and we've been exploring what the Bible calls wisdom. And how living in um, biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, embracing wisdom as scripture offers it to us, as God offers it to us. We've been exploring how that reality makes it uh, um, uh, accessible and available for us to live and to build and craft uh, lives that are worth living, a worthwhile Life And the way we've been doing this the last couple of weeks, we, each week we've been asking a question, a particular question. Um, so just so you're aware, some of these questions come from a book by a pastor and an author in Atlanta, Georgia, named Andy Stanley. A couple of years ago, he wrote a book called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. So as we trek through this series, if any of these questions really strike a chord with you and you want to get really practical about the question, the book itself is a very practical question, I would recommend the book to you. Um, But today we are going to ask that question, the legacy question. What story am I telling with my life? Uh, Throughout the series, what we've been saying is that wisdom is not a static set of solutions to problems. That's typically, throughout life, that's typically what we're looking for. We have a problem in front of us, and we just want the IKEA instruction manual that helps us solve the problem so that we can get on with our day. But wisdom is quite different than that. Wisdom is actually, excuse me, a dynamic gift of God. Meaning it's dynamic, it's not static. It wraps itself around our hearts and minds, every decision, every circumstance, every situation. It's a dynamic gift of God. It's not our own to muster up in and of ourselves, but the wisdom of God is something we receive from him. It's a dynamic gift of God that helps us build worthwhile lives. And I think all of us would agree I would like to live a worthwhile life. I'd like to look back on my life years from now and say, you know, that was a life worth living. That was a life that tells a story worth telling. And in order for for us to do that, living with legacy in mind, asking that question, what story am I telling with my life is of utmost importance. But it's actually easier said than done. Right? Because the reality is most of us fail to ask that question, what story am I telling with my life, on a day-to-day basis because we get so wrapped up in the immediate. We get so wrapped up in the stuff that is right in front of us, the stuff that feels like I've got to have it or be it or own it right now. In fact, let me show you a painting of a man named Denis Diderot. Uh, Some of you may know that name, Diderot, from maybe like an undergraduate philosophy class. Um, Denis Diderot was an 18th century French philosopher and writer, and actually his claim to fame is that Diderot um, created the first uh, official set of encyclopedias. So Diderot, along with a team, authored the encyclopedia, at least the first version of the encyclopedia. Now here's what's really interesting about Diderot. He became really famous for creating the encyclopedia. The encyclopedia itself became very popular, but Diderot, for him, it was a passion project. He did it out of love, a desire to help others know more about the world, and he didn't make any money doing it. So Diderot was really famous for creating the encyclopedia, and he lived in poverty. And then one day, Catherine the Great, who was the empress of the Russian Empire at the time, and a big fan of Diderot's encyclopedia, she heard that Diderot was living in poverty. And so she hires Denis Diderot to become her personal librarian. And at the age of 52, Denis Diderot goes literally overnight, he goes from poverty to immense wealth. And then, uh, famously, the first thing that Denis Diderot purchases with his newfound wealth is a silk scarlet robe. That's the robe he's wearing in this portrait. What's really interesting, though, is what happens after he purchases the silk scarlet robe. He hadn't purchased nothing else, so he lived in this decrepit shack of a home, And he lived, obviously he had very humble surroundings because he, up until that moment in life, he'd been really, really poor. And so he had this really expensive silk robe and then he looked at his new robe against the backdrop of his humble belongings and his humble abode and something felt off to him. He writes later that he began to hyper-focus on each individual item in his home. And one by one, he starts looking at a pot. And he says, you know, that's the pot of a poor man. And he goes out, throws away the pot, and buys a really expensive pot. He just goes step after step, item after item, until he's purchased like a new home. And multiple homes. And livestock. And and all of this stuff. His entire life, step by step, changes. And he begins to live this rich man's life. Until finally, irony of ironies, by the end of Diderot's life, guess what? He lived in poverty. He wasted it all away. And toward the end of his life, close to his death, he wrote an essay, a famous essay called, this title is so great, Regrets on Parting with My Old Dressing Gown. What he meant was, before he bought the silk scarlet robe, he had this old tattered robe he wore at home, and he connects the poverty he found himself in at the end of his life to that initial decision to hyper-focus on getting a brand new rich man's robe. And he says this in the essay, I was an absolute master of my old dressing gown, but I have become a slave to my new one. And he did not mean that he was a literal slave to the red robe. He meant that what the red robe symbolized, he had become enslaved to. This sort of step-by-step, hyper-focused on the one thing right in front of him that led to a series of unwise decisions, that led to an unwise life, that led to a life returning right back to where he had started. And maybe scarlet silk robes are not your thing. Or maybe they are. Maybe some of you are like, I love my red silk robe at home. I don't know. Whatever it is, though, all of us can relate in some sense right, to the tunnel vision we get in life sometimes. When a want becomes a need. right, And we begin to make really important decisions that will impact and influence the rest of our lives and maybe the lives of others based on this really myopic view of the immediate thing right in front of us. It's those moments when we feel, again, enslaved, right? It becomes a master, in the words of Diderot, a master in our lives. We start saying things like, I need it right now. I have to have it right now. Nothing else matters. This one thing is what I absolutely need right now. And this often, not always, but often leads to a series of unwise decisions which left alone leads to an unwise life. Um, There's a word in psychology for this. It's called focalism. Sometimes it's called anchoring. And essentially focalism, um, the definition, it's the human tendency to uh, place too much emphasis, too much focus on a single factor, a single feeling, or a single piece of information when making an important decision. We do this sort of thing All the time, right? Maybe it's a relationship we should have never been in or purchases we should have never made or arguments we should have never had. Whatever it might be, the list goes on and on and on, but focalism or anchoring has a way of blinding us to the big picture and we begin making decisions based on sort of a focused tunnel vision on the one thing that's right in front of us. Again, not always bad, but often leads us to unwise decisions. Andy Stanley, the writer, um, he says that the initial information enhanced by the accompanying feelings becomes larger than life, and it taints or blurs other facts and bits of information that should be taken into consideration. And we lose focus of our surroundings, our decision-making context, and hyper-focus on the thing, the opportunity, the option, or the person right in front of us. And so again, if we want to live the wise life that leads to a life that is worthwhile, then one of the questions we have to ask is, not just what's the best option right now, but rather to ask the question, what's the best story I can tell with my life? So often we live life asking step-by-step, moment-by-moment, circumstance-by-circumstance, I find myself asking, okay, what is the best option right now? And essentially what I'm doing is I am looking for the easiest, the most comfortable, um, the most relaxed, the most accessible uh, option before me. The one that feels the best, the one that brings the most immediate gratification. That's not always bad. But if that is always our decision-making filter, then by definition, what you are doing is you are making decisions based only on the now. But if you care about legacy, if you care about the story your life tells, that is impossible to do unless you begin to live with perspective. It's impossible to leave a legacy worth leaving, unless you begin to think story, not options. If you want to live the wise life, if you want to, again, tell a particular story with your life, you have to think story and not options. Here's the thing. The best stories in life, the best stories, fiction and nonfiction, the best stories are typically most often written through sacrifice and struggle, not comfort and ease. Just think about that for a moment. When's the last time you watched a movie and really there was no tension, no obstacle for the characters to get over, um, everything was easy, everything was simple? That, like, they wouldn't make a movie like that. They wouldn't write books like that, right? I mean, the stories uh, that are worth telling always have obstacles, challenges, things to overcome. That's why the story is worth telling. And yet we fail to embrace that reality in the stories of our actual lives. In our actual lives, what we're looking for is the sort of story that is like not worth telling. I want it easy. I want it comfortable. I don't want to do hard things. What's the easiest? What's the most comfortable? Uh, What's the the most, um, you know, non-tense option before me? Let me do that. And if we live that way long enough, what we are guaranteeing is that we will live a life that is not worth living. We'll tell a story with our lives not worth telling. There's this story in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures about a somewhat obscure character. Some of you know, some of you may not. There's a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a man who lived about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And the moment in history during which his story unfolds is really interesting. And it's actually really important. Nehemiah was a Jewish man. And remember, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, with the Hebrew Scriptures, what you know is that the Jewish people, the Israelites, were God's chosen people. God had chosen them to be a blessing to the world. Uh, But the Israelites have this sort of up and down relationship with God. For seasons, they live in great relationship with God, living in obedience, living godly lives. And then they turn away from God. They rebel against God. They begin worshiping other gods. And then God gets really upset and angry and heartbroken. And that ebb and flow is sort of marked by um, exile. And that word is essentially a big word, but biblically speaking, it's a word that describes when God's people are displaced from the land God had promised them. And uh, we don't quite understand this in kind of the modern Western world, but land geography in the Bible is like critically important. It's not just about the land. It's not just about owning property. Living in the land God had promised you was a sign that you were in right relationship with God and that God's blessing was abundant upon your life. And so when Nehemiah arrives on the scene, here's what you need to know. The Israelites, God's people, have been living in exile, displaced from their land. In other words, detached from right relationship with God for 70 years. And when Nehemiah's story begins to unfold, God's people have just found their homeland again. They've just returned from exile to Jerusalem, which is a big, giant deal. It means that they are beginning to rewrite their story with God, that God is bringing his people home again. But all is not well. Let me read the story for you. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Akaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the citadel of Susa. Now Susa is uh, the capital city of the Persian Empire at the time. I'll get to that here in a moment. So Nehemiah is a Jewish man living in the capital of Persia, which is a pagan empire and the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant. Those are the the Jewish people, God's chosen people, who had returned to Jerusalem. The Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And then Nehemiah does this. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are faithful I will scatter you among if you are unfaithful I will scatter you among the nations. That's exile. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, let's work our way backwards. First, at the end of the prayer, Nehemiah says, God, give me success in the presence of this man. This man he's talking about is the king of Persia. And the reason, if you read the rest of the story, the reason um, Nehemiah asks God to give him success is because Nehemiah is about to go to the king of Persia and ask him if he would be allowed to return to Jerusalem to help rebuild the homeland of God's people, which is now, according to the story, in absolute ruins. This is a big, giant deal. Because if the homeland is in ruins, again, this is something we have a hard time conceptualizing in our modern minds. But if the homeland is in ruins, what it symbolizes to God's people is that their relationship with God and God's blessing upon them is not the way it ought to be. This is a big, giant deal. It's not about geography. It is about relationship with God. And so Nehemiah is about to go to the king of Persia and not only say, would you allow me to go back to Jerusalem and help rebuild the city? He's also going to ask the king of Persia to give him manpower and money and resources to rebuild Jerusalem. That is a big, giant ask to a pagan king. And then the story, at least this section of the story ends how? Nehemiah self-identifies. He says what? I was cup. Bearer to the king. Why does that matter? When you and I hear the word uh, cupbearer, we think to ourselves, oh, what does that mean? Does that mean Nehemiah just like poured the drinks at the king's parties? And in part, it does, but it means so much more than that. In the ancient Near Eastern world, not just in Persia, but throughout ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, cupbearer was not a description, it was a title. It was a descriptive title. Um, bearers to kings were the king's last line of defense. In the ancient Near Eastern world, kings and queens were always under the threat of assassination from other empires or enemies within who wanted to rule the throne. Yes? Some of you guys have watched, you know, Game of Thrones, and you're very familiar with this, and you're laughing uncomfortably because you don't want other people in church to know you watch Game of Thrones. It's okay. Grace and peace to you. Okay. So, you know, you you understand how like crazy it can get, right? The throne. Everyone wants a throne. The, the most common way to assassinate um, a king or a queen in the ancient Near Eastern world was by poisoning their drink. It was extremely common. So, what would kings have uh, to prevent this? They would hire cupbearers. And the job of the cupbearer was not just to pour the drinks. The job of the cupbearer was to drink the king's drink before the king drinks it. So cupbearers, their job was literally to put their lives on the line for the king. Because of this, cupbearers were king's closest confidants. They weren't just employees in the kingdom. Cupbearers were considered a part of the royal court. They were extremely wealthy, they had absolute influence in uh, the kingdom, and they were held in highest regard. In fact, there is some evidence that in the ancient world, kings considered cupbearers closer to them relationally than their own spouse's. I mean, that was the relationship between cupbearers and kings. And Nehemiah is a Jewish man who serves as the cupbearer to the Persian king. The king of Persia, which at the time is the biggest, largest, fiercest empire in the known world. What does this mean about Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a wealthy, respected, influential man. Yes, his job was to put his literal life on the line to protect the king of Persia. But in terms of the day-to-day of his life, Nehemiah was comfortable. He lived in the king's palace. He was considered one of the most powerful and influential and affluent men in the Persian empire by way of his role. What that means is that Nehemiah's best option now was to stay put. Nehemiah's best option in this story was to stay right where he was as cupbearer to the king. To continue enjoying his influence and his affluence to continue enjoying his wealth and his riches, to continue enjoying living in comfort and ease in the king's kingdom, in the royal palace. But when Nehemiah hears that his homeland is in ruins, he doesn't choose the easy thing. He doesn't choose the comfortable thing. He chooses struggle and sacrifice makes the hard decision that's why there's a book in the bible about nehemiah if nehemiah had said in that moment uh when his brother and these other men came and said hey jerusalem is in ruins the people have returned but it is not a livable place if nehemiah had said oh man that's a bummer good luck you and i would not be talking about him today Nehemiah asked the question, not what's my best option. He asked the question, what story do I want to tell with my life? How does he do this? How can we do this? Verse 4 says that when Nehemiah heard these things, when he heard about the brokenness, the ruins of Jerusalem, which didn't actually directly affect his life, by the way, right? Just because Jerusalem was in ruins doesn't mean that his life got any more You know, difficult. It didn't. He was fine. But when he hears about the ruins in Jerusalem, what does he do? I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah doesn't um, escape from or ignore the ruins in Jerusalem. He doesn't escape from or ignore the tough stuff happening back at home. What does he do? He leans into what's broken. He feels it in his bones. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. You know, when I consider my own life in those moments when I fail to make decisions based on the story of my life and instead make decisions on the best option now, what's most comfortable and what's most easy, when I'm really honest with myself, what I realize is that choosing better options right now is often for me a way of escaping the challenge of writing a better story. They're not always opposed, but most of the time they are in most of my day-to-day decisions and circumstances and situations, there are almost always at least two options before me. And not always, but almost always, those two options, the longer I think, the clearer it becomes. That if I choose the easier path, it's actually for me in some ways an opportunity to escape the challenge of choosing the path that leads to a better story happens all the time in my marriage, the way I interact with my kids, and the way I think about finances. So many ways in which um, choosing the easier path is simply a way of escaping the challenge of writing a better story. So the question for us, what's broken in your life, or what, what might be broken in the lives of those around you? And how might we lean into that brokenness rather than trying to escape it and instead lean in to write a better story? And as Nehemiah does that, he does something else that is really challenging but really profound and quite beautiful. Verse six, Nehemiah says, I confess, he prays, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you, God, you notice something really interesting about his confession here. Typically, you and I, again, as modern Western people, we think very individualistically and autonomously. So when we hear words like confess or even repentance, we talked about that several weeks ago, we think of it primarily as a private individual matter. I confess um, the stuff I need to confess. I repent of the stuff I need to repent of. But the communal problems at hand or the ruins or the rubble of culture and society at large, I didn't do that. That's not me. And that's fair. It's fair. But think about legacy. Think about, in fact, the legacy you have inherited. And some of it is really beautiful and really good. But there is probably, if you are anything like me, there is probably some legacy you have received that is full of pain or grief, or loss, or frustration, or absence. Now think about what Nehemiah does here. He attaches himself personally to a communal legacy. Do you see it? He doesn't just say, God, I confess to you my sins, but I didn't ruin Jerusalem. I didn't do everything that the people of God did to cause you to send them into exile. That wasn't me. I wasn't even alive when that happened. That's not my junk to own. So I don't know. I just confess the little naughty things I've done in the last few years, but all the other stuff, that's their stuff. It's not what Nehemiah does. What does he do? He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, our people have committed, including me, And my family, my father's house. I confess the stuff that we have committed against you. What Nehemiah, I want to be clear here. What Nehemiah is not doing is beating himself up over things that have been done to him. That is not what I am saying. It wasn't your fault. You didn't cause that pain or that brokenness that came your way. For many of us, we were simply born into environments and situations where broken decisions, selfish decisions, myopic views of the best option now caused a bunch of heartache and heartbreak in our lives. That's not on you. But if you want to change that story, Legacies don't change from the outside in. They only change from the inside out. If you want to change the story you've inherited, like Nehemiah, you can't do it sitting comfortably from the sidelines. You have to enter the pain. You have to look at the whole story and say, you know what, that wasn't my decision. That wasn't my choice. I didn't cause those things to happen, but God, I confess to you, all of that, that was wrong, that was broken, that was selfish. You name the sin and confess it to God, your own and that which you have inherited. And when you do, where does the story go? He goes and seeks God's help because this is really hard to do. He says, God, give your servants success today. Give your servant success today. Nehemiah knows that as he um, confesses both individual and collective sin, he confesses of the legacy. He confesses of the brokenness of the story. He longs to change that story. He leans into the brokenness to change that story. He understands it's too big for himself. And he asks God for help. And if you read the rest of Nehemiah, what you realize is that God helps, and the ruins are restored. When I think about legacy, on a day like this especially, I think about my mom. Now, um, I know this is weird, because for some of us, we think about our moms, and we think, yeah, my mom is like my hero. That's how I feel. She wasn't perfect by any means, but a hero. But I know there are others of us in this room who we, we think about our moms, and we think, no, there's a lot of pain there a lot of brokenness. Some of us are somewhere in between. And what's interesting about my story is I can relate to both. Because on a day like this, again, when I think about Mother's Day and legacy and the stories I've inherited, I think about my mom, but also, interestingly enough, I think about my dad. And one of the reasons, some of you know my story, is because my mother and my father are two polar opposite ends. They are a juxtaposition of two different types of legacies. I'll show you a photo of me and my mom when I was a little kid. I have dozens and dozens of pictures like this with me and my mom. I can count on one hand how many pictures like this I have with my dad. Because I didn't know my dad. Because my dad was out of my life by the time I was four. Because my father, Passed away 10 years ago, and I never had a relationship with a man. My father um, wrestled with some really strong addictions and vices most of his life. And time after time, I've come to believe that my dad was a good man, um, but an unwise man. My dad, time and time again, chose options instead of the best story for his family. I think deep down inside, he wanted to write a beautiful story for his family, but when easy, comfortable, immediately gratifying options were presented to him, somehow, some way, for some reason, he couldn't fight the urge. And he lived an entire life choosing best options rather than, and at the consequence of, not being able to write the best story. So I didn't know my dad. He was completely absent from my life. And sometimes in my worst moments, you guys, I am tempted to be that man. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and a wife and a very demanding job. You, you probably look at this and go, that must be easy. It's actually kind of hard what I do, what we do, this stuff. And so I go home and I'm tired and most days, to be honest with you, and this is how simple it is, most days I would rather put my kids on mute. You know what I mean? <laughs> and just like veg out on the couch. That would, that's what I would prefer to do sometimes. But the reason on most days I don't is because though that seems like the best option now, I have this lingering image of my own father in the back of my mind. You know what that image is? Nothing. It's the image of absence. That's the legacy I received from him. My mother, on the other hand, worked two, three jobs, a single mom, an immigrant woman trying to make ends meet in the Silicon Valley to provide some semblance of a life for us. She leaned into the broken rather than escaping from it. My mother, to this day, chooses sacrifice and struggle, and with God by her side, my mom changed the trajectory of our family's story. She's actually the first person on my mother or father's side. My mother is the first Christian in either of my family lineages. My mother, through sacrifice and struggle, changed literally The eternal trajectory of my family. My daughter and my son, I read the Bible and pray with them every night. And my hope is that someday Jesus captivates their hearts and minds and they live eternity with the Lord. And that is maybe possible because my mom made a difficult decision decades ago. My mom, to this day, prays for all of you every morning. If anything I've ever said here has influenced or helped you, even an inch, you don't know my mom, but that is her legacy bleeding out of me into this community. That's how legacy works. You sacrifice and you struggle, and your your life begins to tell a story that you could not have imagined. My mom left a legacy of rebuilding what my father tore down here's the thing everyone leaves a legacy you are leaving a legacy there is no choice in the matter the only choice we have is what legacy will we leave behind does our legacy leave things in ruins or does it rebuild for future generations makes me think of that beautiful passage in Isaiah 61 that they, God's people, will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Andy Stanley reminds us that we write, you write the story of your life one decision at a time no matter what legacy you have inherited, no matter how broken or frail or flawed or painful or absent, the stories you have received, if you wanna change the story for future generations, you write the story anew one decision at a time, one struggle at a time, one sacrifice at a time. One choosing left instead of right because left is harder but leads to a better story. One of those decisions at a time. I mean, sometimes we think legacy and story and we just think big picture. We want to get to the final chapter ASAP because it feels so good to experience triumph. But triumph only feels great after you have overcome challenge. And so can we, you and I, be the sorts of people who live the wise life, live and tell stories with our lives that are worth telling by not choosing the easy thing or the comfortable thing, but by choosing sacrifice and struggle, challenge and obstacle, knowing that those are the stories worth telling. We tell Nehemiah's story today because he chose that path. We are all here today because it tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, did what? Endured a cross. We gather because God chose not the easy thing, but the best thing.